If you're a fan of big ideas, debate, and politics, check out our festival partner, Geopolitical Magazine Foreign Policy. A forum for informed debate about global affairs, foreign policy keeps a finger on the pulse of world news and political happenings. Beyond articles that delve behind the headlines via traditional reporting, Foreign Policy has so many other products to offer, ensuring that no matter how you like to engage with eye-opening content, there is a method for you. Check out their free offerings, like Foreign Policy Live, their forum for live journalism, newsletters, and podcasts. And with a subscription, unlock in-depth features and quarterly magazines, including their recently dropped spring edition, All About India. Fans of IAI will love Foreign Policy for more of the mind-expanding, insightful content that they seek. To explore their content, take advantage of an exclusive discount for IAI fans. Subscribe now using promo code LIGHT24 to save 50% and unlock access to everything Foreign Policy has to offer. Hello and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times. Philosophy for Our Times is brought to you in partnership with the New College of the Humanities, a university-level college offering undergraduate and postgraduate degrees in the heart of London. NCH pride themselves on offering unprecedented access to a world-class academic faculty. Philosophy students at the college are taught by some of the foremost scholars in the field, and one-to-one tutorials create a personalised teaching experience. Choose your major and minor for a unique combined honours degree and study the NCH Diploma to widen your appreciation of the world in ways you'd never thought of before. Go to nchlondon.ac.uk for more information. Think better. Think NCH. This week's episode tackles the pivotal question of whether morality is a choice. Can we say that famine and genocide are objectively bad? Or are these moral choices of equal value? If there is no universal morality, are moral beliefs actually the cause of some of the world's greatest human suffering? From ISIS to the Iraq war, our speakers tackle the grand consequences moral perspectives have taken. To debate this issue, we have on our panel literary theorist Stanley Fish, writer and broadcaster Miriam Francoise, and journalist and former speechwriter to Tony Blair, Philip Collins. Roger Bolton hosts. Moral convictions can be used to justify terrible acts. Is morality and the belief that we have right on our side the source of appalling acts and not their solution? Or can we dismiss the morality of others and hold our own version of morality to be the one true version? Professor Fish. I thought I'd begin by trying to define our key term, which is morality or moral system. And what I'll offer is not philosophically rigorous, uh, but is intended to be useful, and I hope it is. So we could define morality provisionally as a understanding that you or I uh, might have of the way the world is and the way it should be. And that understanding comes complete with values, goals, and senses of what is appropriate and inappropriate in attempting to realize those values and goals. The first thing I want to say about a morality, however, is that it can't be chosen. It is not an option in the way that you might have options if you go to buy a new automobile. Moralities are somehow 
entities that choose you. One of the other things to know, I believe, about a moral system is that its hold on you is total in the sense that it cannot be challenged by any external yardstick. That is, it's not the case that you have a moral system, and that's even a bad vocabulary because it suggests that you could hold it in your hand at a distance from you and then put it back in your pocket. It's quite the reverse. It has you in its pocket. And what that means is that any challenge from the outside will only be recognized as error. John Locke put it beautifully in his A Letter Concerning Toleration in 1689, every church is orthodox to itself, to all others erroneous. And indeed, the best instance of the kind of morality that I'm speaking of is religion, where one's religion, often called a matter of faith, is not something that you daily compare with other alternatives and then make a new choice. What this means in relation to our topic today, as far as I am concerned, is that what your morality tells you to do is right. And the designation of what is and is not an appalling act will be a designation made by your morality and not by any independent system of measure or calculus. There is no independent system or measure of calculus in relation to which moralities could be surveyed and then assessed and judged, or in a relationship in which you could survey and assess moralities. Does this mean that there could never be a change in your morality? Not at all, but that's a question that we'd best leave for later on in the discussion. Thank you very much indeed. So I, I approach this myself as, as a Muslim, as someone who's very familiar with a moral code, which does hold to the notion that there are universal principles or certainly a text of universal value, which is related to in different times and at different places in terms of its applicability, and which has to be combined with a rigorous system of self-discipline in order for the relationship between the individual and those principles not to be mired by what we would call the ego, but what, what other people might call self-interest, uh, which would include a strong commitment to, to prayer, to fasting, to charity, to, to things that are designed to sort of discipline your body, your soul, in order that you could then relate to those higher principles in a manner which was, if not disinterested, but certainly less connected to your own personal interests. So that's how I personally approach issues of morality, and certainly I, I would take issue with the notion that there can be no universals. But on the flip side, I also don't believe that those universals can be in any way fixed or narrowly defined, uh, because they can then be used to serve uh, imperialist colonial objectives as they have uh, historically and perhaps more contemporaneously. When I think about strong moral convictions, I think about people like Colin Kaepernick, who took a stand during the NFL games against racial injustice in America. And I think what really makes those acts of moral conviction stand out, just as they did for Rosa Parks, just as they did for Abdel Hussein Saddari, the uh, Iranian uh, consulate in Paris who saved thousands of Jews. What made those acts of moral worth were that they involved elements of self-sacrifice. They required the person undertaking them to put aside their own self-interest in the cause of a greater ideal. 
And what I'm usually suspicious of is people who find that their self-interests and their moral convictions happen to align beautifully. Could I just deal with this first question, if, if to put it aside, which is, are strong moral convictions the cause of appalling acts? I take it that we would all agree that strong moral convictions can cause or have as a consequence appalling acts. No. But it's another thing. <laughs> it's another thing to say that they're the cause of it. Now, I'd like to pick up something that you said, uh, Stanley. You said, morality can't be chosen. Morality chooses you. I think Miriam would say, and I think Christians would say, we haven't just inherited a set of beliefs. At a certain point, we have to consciously embrace them. And they're not necessarily chosen for us. We may be predisposed by the way we're brought up. But we have a moment when we can choose to follow a particular path. Are you saying that is, is an illusion? I'm saying that if you're thinking of the moment of choice as a genuine moment of choice in which you are not at all attached to any system, that there's no such moment of choice. There are moments of choice uh, which are impelled actually internally from the morality that already grips you, but there are never moments of pure choice. The idea of rationally choosing your ends and your ways of proceeding is central to liberal political thought, the kind of thought that we've all grown up with, the kind of thought which is usually called enlightenment thought. Enlightenment thought is an extraordinary failure. It is a brief against conviction. It is an empty suit whose emptiness becomes more and more evident every day. Does this mean that you think there is no such thing as evil in the sense of it existing outside of us and not being our construct? I think that if we can go back to the phrase appalling acts, that the question of what is or is not an appalling act cannot be answered independently of the moral convictions of the person who is either asking the question or is being asked to answer the question. And the inevitable question put forward will be, in terms of 20th century history, you find it impossible to make or think there could be an independent judgment, if you like, of Auschwitz or the concentration camps. Yes, which doesn't stop me for a second from making a judgment. You must make a distinction, I think, between philosophizing about these matters and living them out. Philosophizing about things like moralities is lots of fun. But when you leave the philosophy seminar, nothing in it travels with you. <laughs> philosophy is entirely an activity without consequences. It's a nice academic holiday for which some people are paid too much. Right, okay, I'm going to be Miriam. <laughs> Miriam, you want to pick up? Well, well, only because I would suggest that there, there's really no value um, other than intellectual masturbation of having a philosophy department in which you develop ideas that you don't actually think have any concrete value or worth in terms of their applicability in the real world. I come from a tradition that is the exact opposite of that tradition. That is, you foster and develop certain principles and ethics within your own personal behavior in order that they may have applicability and worth for the outside world. The prophet, peace be upon him, said, you have to love for others what you love for yourself. That's a principle you cultivate within yourself, but then which you develop in terms of how you assess the worth of much larger decisions you might be making, be they political or other. But I, I have to point out that 
the idea that your convictions are essentially just a product of your socialization, your position in history and time. I mean, you're, you would yourself be a victim of that argument and if, if you stand by it. Everything you're saying then is purely the product of you being here now. Yeah. This, and is this, actually this is a has great no philosophical gotcha move. It's called the self-referential move. Uh, you know, it's, it's been practiced by everyone and it's practiced actually in a shameless way uh, by stupid people like Jürgen Habermas. No, hold on, I'll let me well, quote you. It's perhaps holding you to the mora- point you, you morality, just made. Morality can't be chosen. Morality chooses you. Yeah. That's right. So you've chosen your morality or your morality has chosen you? No, your morality has chosen you. And all you need to have is a sense of the way the world is and a sense of the way you think the world should be. The distance between those two, of course, is the space in which you operate and act morally, trying to make the world better in relation to your sense of what it should be. But are you suggesting that the moralities, as moralities choose you, in a sense, those moralities are no better or worse than each other, and that you are an uncritical acceptor of that morality because you can't, as it were, independently choose it. From you what said, perspective do you ask your question? Your statement that morality no, chooses no, no, no. you. No, from what perspective do you ask your question? The chairman trying to elucidate your views. <laughs> no, but you're assuming, you're making an assumption that the choice is between positing an independent morality and well i'm not sure what in other words what i'm I'm saying i'm just quoting you and i'm trying to say if morality chooses you yeah that implies you have no choice but to accept it or accept another morality and therefore the question followed from that is are all moralities of equal value from the point of view of any one of us who is gripped by a morality, of course, all moralities are not of equal value. The only one that has true value is yours. And that will be the case no matter how many times your morality changes. No matter how many times you go from one corner of the political spectrum to another. So I'm sorry to have to do it again, but Hitler's morality is the same as I No, 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 not at all. Because you're asking the question from a perspective in which there is no morality gripping you. You're asking someone to go to what Thomas Nagel, American philosopher, called the place from nowhere and then make judgments or ask questions. There is no place from nowhere. It's a useless question, Roger. Right. Thank you. Now, you're welcome. I've asked a few in my time. Now, Philip, uh, can, we, uh, can we deal with this issue, first of all, of universality? We've heard Miriam talk essentially from Muslim position, Christian would also say that and so on, so that there are values before us, if you like. Do you share that view or not? Well, I've got something of, of both of the traditions. I was, before I went into politics and then into journalism, a political philosopher. And I actually rather share your view that philosophy is too often something without consequence. But I think that's a criticism of it. And I think there are schools of philosophy, as Miriam said, which absolutely are concerned with the consequences of their action in the world and the way that their ideas shape the world. And that's the the tradition of philosophy that I was interested in. Though I think it fails most of the time. And I've noticed that time and time again when I went from the philosophy seminar into active politics, trying to 
encapsulate what I was doing in any kind of reasoning about it that I had done prior to there, I found there's no connection between these two things at all. And I think that's to the detriment of both activities. They would be better off if there were some sort of relationship, but there isn't. It made me wonder about when the philosophy I'd done prior to going to politics, which was political philosophy, bear in mind, the attempt to understand, legitimate, and comprehend the activity that I was now doing, that I had learned nothing of any value for the activity I was carrying out. Now, that struck me as a peculiar thing to conceive. No, no, absolutely but, but, but right. Pull, pull us back to this first, the idea of universal values, if they exist, and if we have any choice about which ones we take, because yeah. Stanley has made that point, you don't choose okay. your morality. Well, I'm going to stand up for a certain type of universal idea. In the Hindu epic, the Bhagavad Gita, there's an extraordinary passage in which, between Krishna and Arjuna, where Krishna essentially says, you must do your duty no matter what. No matter what the consequences, it is a moral imperative that you do your duty. It's an absolute virtue. And Arjuna, the critic of Krishna, says, no, on the contrary, you must have mind to the consequences. T.S. Eliot picks this up in Four Quartets with that passage which says, fare forward, voyagers, fare forward or for farewell. So do you fare forward irrespective or do you fare well? Uh, and I think we have to fare well. I think we have to have mind to the consequences. And I think that's a, a crucial moral imperative which applies across cultures. And there's some very basic moral precepts that in any morality we follow. So you would say, one of the questions we've been asked to discuss, are strong moral convictions the cause of appalling acts? You would say, of course, there can be appalling acts of, of course. consequence. Oh, without question. Oh, I mean, I've just written a book on uh, rhetoric in which I didn't shy away from, from Hitler and Stalin and Mao and the, the, the brilliant rhetoricians whose, whose command of the techniques were extraordinary, but for ends I regard as morally egregious. And I don't regard that as morally egregious in rel some relativistic way. I'm absolutely prepared to say these were diabolical. Uh, I don't therefore, by I use that term metaphorically diabolical. I'm not suggesting I believe in an Does that mean evil. That you think there is a reality of evil, for example, that can be, as it were, outside us, separate from acts that exist. I don't mean a personification no, I, I, of evil. I, I, but no, I don't think that. You don't think that. I don't think Do you, that. Miriam, I think would I, you, you would presumably feel that, would you, as a Muslim? I think we, we all have within ourselves a propensity for good and evil, and that there's a certain level of spiritual discipline required in order to tame the uh, less worthy parts of our character and to perhaps channel those energies towards more positive forces. But um, I think, I guess what your question is, do I believe in sort of objective uh, truths outside of ourselves, which would, for example, allow us to determine objectively that, you know, famine, forced migration, genocide are bad things objectively? Yes, I do. Do you want to hear more from the world's leading thinkers? If the answer to that question is yes, subscribe to iai.tv for unlimited access to thousands of debates, talks, articles, academy courses and live events. Are you bored of the surface level news, politics, sports and entertainment coverage on your newsfeed? Go deeper, get the philosophy behind the news and get the latest big ideas from the world's leading thinkers on subjects at the core of the human condition, life, the universe and everything in between. It's free for the first month, and there's no commitment to pay, so subscribe now to understand the world beyond the surface level. Let's pursue the second question, which is, is belief in any morality dangerous? 
Stanley, can I ask you, do you think the tendency to claim that decisions are based on moral values is potentially dangerous? Depends, again, the perspective from which the acts that issue from that morality is seen. Those who are gripped by another morality and believe either that the acts that you believe are appalling are necessary, will not agree with you, and think, no, this is not dangerous, this isn't the way to salvation. You can't make an independent judgment about genocide. You're not prepared to say about genocide I'm is not prepared wrong. to say anything about genocide. No, that's not true. I think genocide is wrong. Okay. I think you genocide know, what's the moral, is wrong. What are the moral values that have led you to that decision? Well, then I would have to rehearse my entire education, uh, my entire career, largely as a student, uh, of Christian theology. Doesn't it answer the question about whether independently no. a judgment can be I made that genocide the is wrong? Of the word so, is, it, is it feasible you could have had an education and a whole autobiography that would have led you to the opposite conclusion? Absolutely. That genocide is not wrong? Absolutely, and that would have been an interesting well, intellectual survey of my life which would have no relationship at all to what I do or to my confidence in doing it. I am not a relativist. I do not believe, as some of Roger's questions suggest, that the morality that Miriam has and the morality that Hitler may have had, how do we know, are the same. And I certainly don't believe that my morality is the same as everyone's in the room. My morality rests on a structure of convictions. It comes along with that structure that I think what my morality tells me to do is right. And there is no independent set of evidence however large, however vast a body that can outweigh that internal... So do you think it's superior? Do you think yours oh. is superior? Superior to those who do not agree with me? Absolutely. <laughs> I, that's abundantly clear, isn't it? You see, I, 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 think, I think that we agree because actually that's my position too. I don't regard my set of views as having some independently verifiable state that I can refer to and say, look, there's the truth, I've located it which you would find in some form of religious belief. That does not mean I hold those views with any less unyielding force, because I do. I have a sort of deep and existential belief that they are right. But I don't think there's some property in the world that I can point to to show that they are right. I have to argue for their rightness. But let me pick up the second theme with Miriam. Is belief in any morality dangerous? Well, so firstly, I think the opposite proposition is actually the scariest, and it's a very much what we see as... I'd say like a product of, of sort of late capitalism, the, the desire to not want to hold on to any absolutes in order to create sort of disaggregated individuals who can essentially be more easily manipulated by market values. But um, I definitely do not think that there are no universal objective truths that we can hold to. I just think that their applicability throughout time will look different. How, how do you determine that an act is morally good? There are several ways, for example, in Islamic jurisprudence that you develop ideas about what constitutes moral good. And one of them is the notion of consensus. Now, consensus doesn't mean that everybody agrees in it, but it does mean that the majority of people will agree that that issue is a moral good. And one of the great things is that you'll always have people who disagree with that, and they're vital to keeping the conversation about what constitutes a moral good alive. They push the boundaries. They make you rethink whether or not what it is that everyone seems to agree on is actually a positive thing. But by and large, you'll find consensus around things like genocide, around things like famine, around things like forced displacement. And that's because I think that there is an objective truth that holds that those things are bad. But where does the consensus exist? 
I mean, how broad? I mean, some people would say, if you look at the British imperial consensus, it's not entirely true, but broadly, perhaps the consensus was that on the whole, the spreading of the Christian message, its association also maybe the sense of a chosen purpose with the British Empire. You might have found a consensus that thought that the empire was a good thing. And obviously that was far too narrow a consensus. Are you suggesting that your consensus takes place within Islam or more broadly? What are the limits of the consensus? I, I would suggest to you that the consensus that the British Empire was a force for good would not have been shared by the majority of people in the colonies. Do you say, coming from your position as a Muslim, that the consensus has to be contained within Islam, but that Islam is sufficient, a consensus within Islam is sufficient to be applicable everywhere? So I think that um, the idea of consensus has to occur within uh, a conversation about ethics in which people share similar parameters and references. So it's much easier, of course, to determine that conversation within an Islamic perspective. Do I think that that consensus would then be of value and perhaps be echoed by those coming at that same issue from a different perspective, be it religious or a-religious? Yes, I do. I think that's the whole purpose of consensus. I think that's why the, the broad areas, which are kind of the higher principles of Islamic law, things like the protection of life, the protection of family, the protection of property, you know, the, these are principles that whatever perspective you're coming at from, I believe that you can recognize the validity of them. But yes, they are internally coherent within my tradition as well. Can I raise a question here? Uh, Philip, you must have known this is coming. It's unavoidable, given your association with Tony Blair. And I know you wrote his speech, you didn't write his policies. But let's talk about Iraq. Do you think that significant leaders of the Iraq project, be in America and perhaps your former boss, had a strong sense of moral conviction as well as political necessity? Obviously, they're all going together. And if so, do you think the consequences of that have been disastrous? First question, do you think Tony Blair and to a degree George Bush were genuinely motivated by a moral perspective? Uh, unquestionably, yes, uh, absolutely, without doubt. Uh, and that might be a very good answer to, your, to the initial question, which is can those moral beliefs have profoundly bad consequences? Clearly they can. This, I think, is a case in point. The Iraq war argument is very interesting because if you go back to the Chicago speech that Blair made in 2003, which I, I didn't write, and, I, and therefore I can say I think it's his best speech, it's essentially... Uh, it's essentially the attempt to rewrite Thomas Aquinas for the 21st century. And it's a series of conditions that must be satisfied before a war is just. The fifth condition is the prudential caveat, which is to say there must be a reasonable expectation that the consequences will be both containable and good ones according to the moral precepts that you set out in the four prior conditions. It's absolutely obvious to me, and it was obvious at the time, that Britain's participation in the Iraq war did not satisfy the fifth of those criteria. It arguably did satisfy the four, but the fifth one, which is to say the prudential caveat, I think it didn't. So the Blair went from a very, very strongly philosophical argument about intervention in Chicago to a rather cavalier argument by the time of the Iraq war itself. So he didn't follow his own precepts, but there's without question there was a moral element to, to it from the beginning. More Blair than Bush, I would say, and I, and I witnessed the conversations between them. You get two arguments about Blair. One is that he was the poodle of the Americans, did whatever they said, and the other is that he's a messianic lunatic who couldn't be stopped. Well, I'm here to tell you it's the latter. If we move on to the third question, then the last question, 
would abandoning morality as a basis of political action lead to a better world? Those who have a faith, let's say Christian faith, for example, would say it's an impossibility. You know, fundamental to Christianity as to some other faiths is you must love your neighbor as yourself. If Kurds are being gassed by chemical weapons, at least you have a responsibility to examine whether you could intervene and not reject the concept that any intervention would be wrong. It's a question of whether it is possible to intervene, as it were, successfully, in that the consequences will be better than that exists now. Now, the implication of the question is that we should abandon morality. Does that mean that we have to embrace amorality? Stanley. The question for me would be abandoning morality for what? Uh, and there have been some candidates offered in, in recent years, and actually they're old candidates. Most popular now is abandoning morality for data banks. Rather than going through the difficult decision-making that's involved, instead accumulate vast bodies of data and then with search engines, and then you will have your answer. Science, or scientism at least, is a version of the same thing. Economics wants to substitute for morality something like maximization of wealth and efficiency. And then there are those who believe in something called rational choice theory, although they can never quite define what is rational, and then they argue about the choices. So all of those are attempts, I think, totally unsuccessful to get to the side of morality, uh, but are instead alternative uh, morality. So I think that when all of these modern ways of shifting decision-making away from the human and giving it to a machine, A won't work and B are also moralities. But would you say also that, I mean, there are politicians who would say you should act ultimately in the nation's interests. Mm -hmm. Now, that is your responsibility. You can't have a wider interest and some of the mistakes of the past hundred years or so because you thought you could do them all. So ultimately, the only definition of certain foreign policy should be the protection and development of your own national interest. Is that where you end up? Well, that's probably where I would end up if, if I were a uh, uh, political official. And this is, of course, the question that was put uh, to John F. Kennedy uh, back when he began to uh, run for president. Uh, would his loyalties lead him uh, to protect always uh, the interests of the United States or would he, would he have another allegiance to the Vatican and to the Catholic Church? There can always be those questions, but there are always, there are always questions uh, about the morality that grips you and whether you can find room in that morality to perform your duties. And again, the suggestion is that if you can't, you must resign and do something else. Uh, Miriam, can I bring you back again on this question? Would abandoning morality as the basis of political action lead to a better world? What I would say is, is quite simple, really. It's that uh, we're never going to stop making judgments. And I think really what the call for abandoning morality is, is essentially a call for abandoning traditional morality. And there currently isn't really much in the way of an alternative, coherent morality being offered in its place. And so what then ends up as a consequence is, I think, individuals without a strong moral reference who are at the sway of a very strong system, which is essentially designed to press us as individuals and produce 
the greatest productivity out of individuals, not as people, but as cogs within a larger system for the profit of a small number of people. And in that sense, our morality risks being developed by, you know, Topshop and IBM and the big companies that are essentially the chattels of the modern era. And that to me is far more terrifying than the idea that we might want to consider the, the worth of centuries of theorizing from a religious and non-religious perspective about morality. Philip, would abandoning morality as the basis of political action lead to a better world? I mean, the Labour Party has been called a moral crusade. Can it be or should it be in part a moral crusade? Yes, it must be. I mean, you can't abandon morality, uh, even if you wanted to, and you certainly shouldn't. Politics is a translation of moral thought into political argument. And the, the really difficult questions come, as Isaiah Berlin said, not between good and bad, that one's easy, but between good and good. It's a conflict between moral goods, which is the nature of politics. And politics is the site where we settle that dispute. So we must have moral arguments in politics. They all have morality attached. But politics is the thing which allows us to negotiate them and come to an agreement that we can both live with, even if we won't agree. Now, Fred, we've run out of time. It's been a great pleasure for me to chair this. I've learned a great deal, and I certainly need to think about what I've heard. Let me thank all our participants very much. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this podcast, brought to you by the Institute of Art and Ideas. For more podcasts, head to iTunes to like and subscribe our page and never miss an episode of Philosophy for Our Times. <laughs>